0: morning everyone, good to see you all this morning, please keep your uh, fingers there in uh, Exodus 25, and we're going to uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you again for this opportunity to meet together around your word. Lord, this morning uh, we commence a new preaching series, and uh, Lord, we uh, want to invite you to come and speak to our hearts. Lord, we're in the Old Testament, but we know that, Lord, even though uh, many people uh, see the Old Testament as being irrelevant today, we know that it points very much to Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you'd help us to see Jesus this morning through what we have to uh, say, what you have to say to us. And Lord, may we give you all honour and glory as we come and we humbly sit at your feet for your teaching today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said today, we commence a new preaching series, and uh, that series is called God in Our Midst. The idea for for this series actually came from a book by the same name, written by a guy called Daniel Hyde. It's a fairly uh, recent book. It's a book that I actually read last year. And uh, so I was reading through the book, it was uh, you know, quite challenging. It gave me, a, I think, for myself personally, a, an even uh, greater appreciation and a deeper understanding of God and of his salvation for us in Jesus Christ. Um, as we look through this series over the next uh, six to eight weeks, my plan is really not to plagiarise his book. <laughs> However, many, I think, with the wonderful insights that will actually come out through these passages and through these, uh, through these messages will be shared with you will that certainly uh, be very much um, certainly attributable to, uh, to much of his writing over this series we'll be focusing on the tabernacle and its furniture hence the, uh, the blue, the purple and the, uh, the scarlet uh, material up behind us and thanks for, uh, for Joe for organising uh, all of that and blue, blue by the way is for heaven it's to remind us of the heavenliness of God I'll test you on that tomorrow Dale the tabernacle you might think what on earth has the tabernacle got to say to us today being you know people who have you know living some three and a half thousand years after this thing was even built what on earth does it have to say to us well I think it has to say an awful lot to us actually and I hope that as we go through this series, you'll see just the, uh, you'll get a grasp of the, of the, uh, the depth of the, uh, the meaning behind it and how it points so much to Jesus Christ. You know, the tabernacle was this portable structure that God gave Moses detailed instructions for. You know, this Exodus 25 reading, which Ken just read to us, it speaks about the fact that, you know, God said to Moses, I want you to tell the people to bring all these contributions of all these materials. All, you know, it goes through there as, as was listed there. Unfortunately, we've run out of silver and gold and dyed ramskins and things like that up the front here, but we've got the, uh, the, we've got the material to remind us anyway. But as you go through Exodus 26 through to Exodus 30, you'll, you'll get all of these incredibly detailed instructions as to the building of this tabernacle. God wanted it made specifically according to his design. And it would be the place where God would then come and meet and dwell with his people in a very visible way. As this place, as this building was set up in the midst of the people, it would be very much a place where the people could visibly see the presence of God with them, dwelling with them there in their day-to-day lives as they carried out their wilderness wanderings. What we need to first understand about the tabernacle, though, is this, that it gives us an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, Oftentimes we uh, speak about the fact that in the Old Testament we speak of shadows and types. Well, the, 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 uh, the tabernacle is indeed a shadow. A shadow gives an impression of something that is real. If I was to, to go out this morning and stand out there in the sunlight, I, my, my, my body would cast a shadow on the ground. But that shadow is only a representation of me. It is not the real me. And so the tabernacle was meant to be this representation of the heavenly dwelling place of God. It was meant to be patterned after heaven. As God said you know, to Moses, he said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, and exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God is saying... Here's the pattern, Moses, and he gave got Moses that pattern there on Mount Sinai when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law for the people of God. And he says, Exactly, Moses, as you see the real thing, this is the pattern that you are to make it. So the tabernacle itself is a picture of the reality of God's dwelling place in heaven. So we need to understand that first and foremost. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through, two, through to 2 and verse 5 says this. The writer of Hebrews says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest speaking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. They, the priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We see here that this, this is a representation of the heavenly dwelling place of God. Hebrews nine twenty four says, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, speaking of the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the tabernacle is only a copy of the true reality of heaven. It therefore gives us insight into the realities of God, namely his person and his character, but it also gives us insight into God's purposes for us as his people, for mankind. When you entered in through those doors this morning, what is it that you came into? A building? An auditorium? A gathering of people? Can I suggest this morning that as we have come to meet together here in this place, that we have entered into something far grander and far greater than we might have imagined. Hopefully as we delve into this tabernacle and its construction and purpose, we will begin to see our own gatherings as the people of God in a new light. Not only that, hopefully we will also begin to gain a much deeper appreciation and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and the wonders of salvation that he has secured on our behalf. This morning I want to begin by giving you a brief overview of the tabernacle in relation to its its construction and its and, and, and its and its function. But then I want to highlight three things that point that it points to, three things that it points to. It speaks first of all of heavenliness. It also speaks about holiness. And it speaks about helpfulness. If we read through in Exodus 25, 1-9, we see that the tabernacle was, as said, was meant to be the place where God dwelt with his people. It was to be his sanctuary. It was to be made, as said, according to the exact pattern that God gave to Moses. It was to be con- used, it was to be constructed from the materials that the people of, of God brought as a, as, a, as a contribution, as a free will offering for the building and the making of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. You might wonder, where on earth did these people get all this stuff? If you go back into Exodus, you'll see that when the people had, uh, been, uh, re- had been freed from slavery in Egypt as they went to leave, the Egyptians actually gave them all this gold and silver and all these, all these materials. So even then, God was planning for what was coming later down the track. And so the people came and they gave... And they gave freely and openly. In actual fact, as you get to Exodus 36, it says that the people gave so much that that Moses had to tell the people, stop, stop giving. We've got more than enough. Wow. What an attitude. What an attitude of worship on the people, on behalf behalf of the people. As I said, it was to be constructed of gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, of fine twine linen, the hides of various animals, acacia wood, oils and spices and precious stones. And given the dimensions and all the various instructions as to how the tabernacle, the tabernacle was to be assembled in Exodus, Exodus chapter 26 through to 30. Essentially, the tabernacle was like this. It was a large tent surrounded by a curtained-off courtyard. I've given you just a brief a, um, sort of uh, illustration or diagram, if you like, up there on the, uh, on the screen. The courtyard itself was to be approximately 46 metres long on the long side and about two, 23 metres wide on the short side. It was to be curtained off with curtains that were around about 2.3 metres high so people couldn't actually look over and see in. The actual tabernacle itself consisted of two rooms. The holy place, which was around about 9 metres by 4.5 metres, which is the first section where we find the uh, the table of showbread, the candlestick and the uh, the altar of incense. And then that was actually cordoned off by a, by a curtain and it went into the most holy of holies, the place where God dwelt, the Ark of the Covenant there, which was uh, approximately 4.5 metres square. That ark of the covenant had the the top was called the mercy seat, which is where God was was um, was pre, where, where God presenced Himself, and inside the ark contained the uh, the law, the the uh, the Ten Commandments, the um, Aaron's staff that budded, and also the container of manna. So we see that it was you know just a, a fairly kind of. Um, you know, fairly kind of uh, unique structure in, in terms of the Israelites had not had anything like this before amongst them. So we get a bit of a picture of, of what it kind of looked like. So let's look then quickly then at what the tabernacle teaches us this morning. And the first thing we're going to focus on is its heavenliness. Now when I was a young boy living in Portsmouth in England, um, I came out here when I was uh, six years old, we lived in a uh, a council a set of council flats in England. Um, we lived on the twelfth floor, and uh, the playgrounds around the uh, around the uh, the place where we lived were bitumen. And I remember on a few occasions going on the roundabout, you know, those roundabouts of death that you can be actually sort of yeah thrown off of, and you know, sort of skinning my head and knees and stuff like that. I lived in a concrete jungle. Every now and again, Mum would take us over to... Uh, we would we, we walk sort of, you know, through into the centre of town, past the Guild Hall, which is kind of like the council chambers and that sort of stuff, across the, uh, you know, the big square where that was, and then underneath the railway bridge and, then, and through this tunnel. And as we came out through from the, on the, on the other side of this tunnel, we were met with this beautiful, luscious, green open park with these beautiful shaded trees and, and birds, you know, whistling and, and, and that sort of thing. And it was like this completely different world... It was like entering into a completely different world. And that was what the tabernacle was like for the people of God. When they came into that courtyard, as they entered into the, through that, that, that curtain, that entry curtain into the courtyard, they were entering into an entirely different world. As I said, the whole thing was completely screened off from the rest of the camp. There was only one way in. And that was through the main entrance, and there was this beautifully, you know, tapestried kind of uh, of curtain right at the right at the front, made of the blue and the purple and the scarlet yarn, all fine twined in, and mixed the white linen, beautifully handmade. And I know that some of you ladies who do the needlecraft and the and the embroidery and things like that, you've got to, you know, you'd have a, a, a probably a much more deeper appreciation of something like that. The tabernacle was designed to reflect the heavenly reality in which God exists and that he desires for his people to experience. It's interesting, you know, the fact that God had actually sort of said to Moses, this is how I want you to make the tabernacle, this is how I want it to be designed, this is the furniture you use, this is, all, this is how, it's, how, how it's meant to operate, tells us, that actually when it comes to worshiping God, it is God Himself who determines what is acceptable worship to Him, not man. God Himself who determines what is acceptable worship. And the fact that the people were coming into this place, into the, the you know, into this, this courtyard area, you know, it, where God was the focus, it says that our worship needs to be God focused. We ourselves are the participants. God Himself is the one whom we come to worship. As we gather here in this building on Sunday, or in fact, anytime we gather together as the people of God, you know, we come into the very presence of this holy and awesome God. Isaiah 6 speaks of the prophet going you know being given this wonderful vision of being brought into the very throne room of God and he stands there before the throne and it says that uh, you know God was there on his throne and his and his train filled the temple and there was smoke and the the the, the, t- the temple shook Because of the holiness of God and and Isaiah was overcome by by this incredible holiness and majesty and glory of God that he said, oh, woe is me, I am undone. I am completely at a loss before God. Hebrews ten nineteen to 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We take that passage and we think that that gives us then the, the, uh, the capacity to come into God's presence in a casual way. We think because Christ has actually made the way open for us to come into the very presence of God now through his perfect sacrifice, that we can come to God casually. And yes, it says that we can come to God in confidence. That confidence has got nothing to do with the fact that we can just waltz in however we like and think that God is going to just embrace us. But it speaks about the confidence that we can know that we can come into the presence of a holy and righteous and glorious God without being struck dead straight away. That's what the confidence means. Because when it came to the people of of Israel, no one could actually come into the very presence of God. Only the high priest, once a year after going through all of these ritual sacrifices and and cleansing and that sort of thing, could he go into the holy place and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people that God would, you know, would, would turn aside his wrath for the time being. So that he would, the people wouldn't be wiped out because of their sin. God said if anyone came into his presence without, without, you know, any kind of right whatsoever, that they would be killed instantly. That's not because of God's vengeful, vengefulness. That's not because God is a, you know, a horrible and, and, uh, and judging God, but because God is a holy God. And yes, for us today, Jesus is the means by which we can come into his presence with confidence, knowing that we won't be killed Knowing that we won't bear his wrath. So we can come with confidence, yes. But we must never ever come with casualness. And with familiarity. And with contempt. Of course, that one entry point at the tabernacle meant, you know, spoke about Jesus, who is the gate. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate, I am the door. There is no other way to God, Jesus is saying, through that imagery. And that curtain there, that, 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 uh, that, that, that entrance point, that only entrance point, speaks of Jesus Christ. And hopefully as we go through this series, we'll see even more how all the various aspects of the tabernacle are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we continue, just, just, to, just uh, as we finish off this whole aspect of heavenliness. Let me just say one more thing: the tabernacle itself faced east-west, and there was significance in that. If you cast your mind back to the, uh, the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, how when they rebelled and they rejected God, they disobeyed God, God sent them out of the garden, didn't He? And what did He put at the eastern side of the garden? The cherubim and the flaming sword, which prevented people from coming back into the presence of God. At that eastern entrance. So to come from the east through to the west is to come from outside of God's presence into the presence of God, moving from east to west. And so as the people came and they saw that tabernacle facing in that direction, and as they moved through that, they could see it was very much a picture of being welcomed more and more into the closeness and the presence of God. The psalmist in Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, and I've already sort of seen it as kind of like speaking about distance. But this has been a new revelation for me as I've worked through this. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us, pointing and moving back into God's presence from east to west, from outside the presence of God, from outside the garden, moving back into being able to dwell with him in his very presence. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The heavenliness of the tabernacle. Next is the holiness. Now the tabernacle was the place of God's holy presence in the midst of his people. I think I might have missed a couple of slides here. Sorry about this, guys, for those of you who are taking notes. Okay, there we go. so it's a different world designed to reflect the heavenly reality in which God exists. And then Jesus is the entry point, John 10, 9. Let's move on to holiness, as I said. The holiness of the tabernacle derived not from the actual it's not from itself, but from the fact that it, of God's holy presence being there within the tabernacle. Apart from God, the tabernacle was just a tent. It's the same with our buildings. You now, this is just a building. This is just a room. It's just an auditorium. But when the people of God come together to meet in this place, then God is present with us. Did you know that? That when we come together to meet together as the people of God here in this place, God is present here. The holy God is present here. The glorious God is present here. As I said, the tabernacle reveals holiness. It reveals God's holiness in three different ways. First of all, by its location. It was situated right there in the centre of the camp, of the camp of the Israelites. The tabernacle was, uh, was set up in the centre and the tribes are arranged around about it. I'll give you a quick uh, diagram here. The tabernacle there is in the, uh, the centre there. Around the outside of the tabernacle were the Levites and the priests. And then outside of that were the tribes. And on the eastern side, the three tribes there. And those numbers, by the way, actually, uh, are the numbers that are given to us from Scripture about the men aged between 20 and 50 who were eligible for, uh, for fighting in the army. Okay? That's what those numbers uh, stand for. Okay? So they just include just the men of 20, 20 to 50 years of age. And you can see they're set up the north, the south, and the east and the west around the tabernacle itself. Does that picture actually uh, give you a, um, an image of something else there? What sort of shape does it form? A cross. Exactly. It forms a cross with God at the centre. God has always got to be at the centre, folks. God has always got to be at the centre of our lives. He has always got to be at the centre of our worship. As I said, the priests who were responsible for the tabernacle and its furniture—they were the ones who were closest, you know, next to the tabernacle, and then the uh, the people, uh, the people around out, around about them. Outside of the camp was considered to be the unholy places. The unholy places. And so what we see is that as you move from outside the camp, moving closer and closer into the clamp, into the tabernacle, through the courtyard, through the holy place, into the most holy of holies, we see that there is a, a greater holiness moving from outside to inside. It spoke of this holiness of God. And of course, there in the holy of holies, that was the epicenter, or if you like, the hot spot of God's holiness. Not only did the uh, the tabernacle reveal the holiness of God by its location, but it also revealed the holiness of God by its construction, the materials that are used for its construction. Again, moving from the exterior, we find concentric circles of ever increasing worth. From the outside, you know there was the the, the, the things were made of, of bronze. The uh, the the um, uh, pegs that actually held up the uh, the outer curtain were actually stood up. They were made of wood and they were stood in, in bronze um, stands, if you like. All right, and the pegs themselves were to to, uh, to, to stake it to the ground. They were made out of bronze. But as you get closer and closer, in fact, actually, the the the, um, the, the altar and the uh, the labour of the the the, uh, the bronze washing labour out in the the courtyard, they themselves were also made of bronze. But as you move closer and closer into the tabernacle itself and into the Holy of Holies, it goes from silver to gold, and it is pure gold. There in the in the um in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, everything was covered in gold. The loat was made of acacia wood, the planks, the boards, and everything were all covered in gold. The ark itself was covered with gold inside and out. So the materials themselves spoke about the ever increasing worth. So that speaks about you know, another aspect of God's holiness, God's worthiness. The four layers of, uh, of covering of the tabernacle, the tent that we saw earlier, there was four layers of, of material that was over the tabernacle. And the inner, the inner layer of material was, again, this fine twine linen with this blue and purple and scarlet yarn you know, weaves through it. And then the next layer was this—was this—was this, was this, uh, was this um, um, goat's hide, if you, this, this, this goat skin, if you like, the, the, the hair, which was white. And then the, the ram skin, which was dyed, the, 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 leather, the leather of the ram skin that was dyed red. And then the outer covering was a little bit—some uh, little bit of a conjecture as to what that might have been. Many scholars actually point to it as being um, the hide uh, the of, of sea cows, or kind of like our dugongs, or things like that. It was kind of like a waterproof covering for the, uh, for the whole structure. But it was the, uglier, the ugliest layer of the lot. And so as you moved in from that layer in, it just got more beautiful and more expensive, more holy. The actual function of the, temp- of the tabernacle also pointed, it to, pointed to its holiness as well. We're told that the people needed to worship God in the splendour of his holiness, Psalm 29 and verse 2. The tabernacle was to be the place where the people came and they offered acceptable sacrifices to God. Where their sins were atoned for. Where they were made clean in God's sight. Levit- Leviticus 11.44 tells us that, we would, that the people were to be holy themselves. It says that you know, God said to his people Israel, you will be for me a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And of course, we we read that later on in the New Testament in Peter's letters where Peter says the same thing about the people of God today. We are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people belonging to God. But also in Peter's letters, we read the fact that we are also to be holy as God is holy. But it is only God who can make us holy. Folks, if there's only one thing that you take away from this message this morning, let it be this. It was a fearful thing to come into the presence of the Lord. It was a fearful thing. Yes, he was their God. He was their father. He was their sustainer and helper. In fact, the Bible speaks about the fact that God was his people's, the husband to his people but he was also the holy God. And today when we come to worship God, we worship that same holy God. Yes, Jesus has opened the way for us to enter into the